Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm an executive recruiter, director of recruiting with VIP, and you're all around hiring guru. And you know it is my goal with this podcast to bring you great thought leaders and people that are really gonna help, you know, change the culture and the workplace. And today is no different. So today on the show, I'd like to welcome Sally Spencer Thomas, president of United Suicide Survivors International, TEDx speaker, and clinical psychologist. Dr. Sally is a mental health advocate and researcher and a suicide loss survivor. She is passionate about enabling social change and supporting mental health and is here today to discuss a very important topic, workplace suicide prevention. I want to give our listeners a warning that today's conversation may be uncomfortable and distressing at times as we discuss, discuss this topic before we get started. But for now, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sally to our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you, Casey. It's a true honor to be here uh, with your with your members and your audience and uh, to have this conversation. You know, it's interesting. I, I usually start the podcast talking about connections and I think this connection and networking and stuff like this, but this connection for sure is one that is really dear to my heart. And we were introduced by a lady, her name is Rashmi, and I'm not gonna say her last name right, Dio? That's probably close, yeah. Yeah, Dio. <laughs> and the reason she thought to introduce us is because on my LinkedIn profile, I list that I am a volunteer for the American uh, Suicide Prevention Organization. And so she saw that and she's like, I, I don't know why you list that or why you do that, but I know someone you need to talk to. And that's how I was introduced to you. And funny, I was actually introduced to Rashmi through Sajel Thaker who I was so surprised when I participated in one of your events, she was there. And I was like, huh, small world. Yep, yep that's how networking works. It is so crazy. Separation, yeah. It is so crazy. So share with us a little bit about what inspired you so much to devote so much of your time and research to this important cause. Sure, well, I'm a psychologist. So as part of the, uh, part of the professional training you get, uh, you get exposure to suicide prevention research and intervention. And I knew going through my graduate school program um, that this was an important topic. So my very first conference was suicide prevention. My very first research project was around suicide and so on. Um, I did an externship, all this stuff. Um, and then my brother died by suicide, which was absolutely life-changing. You know, we all have these events in our life, the before and the after event. And that for me was absolutely transformational, the grief, the shock, um, the overwhelm that happened in that moment. Um, and, and at that point in my career, I'd actually left therapy. I, I was doing leadership development and other things. And, um, but it brought all of it back when he died. I was, um, uh, I, I got some grants at the university that I was working at and I, I just, as part of my healing process, I just poured my whole self into trying to figure out what is the gap that we're missing? Um, what can we do? What bold gap filling thing can we do 
to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people because no one should die in isolation and despair. And, and I am with you in that pain. You know, I too have lost a very close loved one from suicide. And so I definitely, and that's why I support the National Suicide uh, for Prevention. I'm not saying that right. I know I'm not, but you know American what? Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I'm that's sure. the one. <laughs> yes, AFSP. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I am a huge supporter of theirs for that reason. Um, how long ago, if I may ask? Yeah, December 7th, 2004. So it, wow. it's a long time ago as far as the calendar is concerned, but it feels very close. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, um, his son announced to me an hour ago that he and his uh, fiance are going to have a baby, you know, and so here's yet another milestone that he's missing. You know, there's just, it never ends. So I'm constantly aware of the whole, constantly aware that he's not here to celebrate with us that, you know, he'd be a grandpa. <laughs> oh, wow. And this would be the yeah. first? Yep. First grandchild. Yep. First grandchild in, in this generation. On yeah. My, on my side of the family. Yeah. Wow. That's, and it is such a loss. And I do think that with the proper education and the proper, I mean, there's going to be some that they're, they're just going to be determined, right? When you have mental illness and all those kinds of things, but some of the suicides that occur, especially, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later when can be a result of the work environment. And that, like you said, that feeling of isolation because, and they don't know where to turn or they feel like they have dug a hole so deep they can't get out of. So, yeah. um, and I'm not sure what this is. I was just going to say that, um, you know, the reason we got into the workplace stuff is because, you know, after Carson died and we were just, I was just trying to understand like what happened here. And I, so I poured into the data in a way that I'd never done before, like all in trying to figure stuff out. And what I realized is the majority of people who died by suicide were like Carson. They were working aged men. Um, the majority of people who died by suicide have never stepped foot into any mental health service. Mm -hmm. They have one attempt and it's fatal. So we're not going to catch them through the healthcare system. We're not going to catch them through the education system. We're going to catch them through work. Work is the most cross-cutting system to catch these most at-risk people for suicide, for suicide death, I should say. Suicide attempt data looks different, but the death data is, you know, it's working age men that is the, the, clear, the clear group that we need to impact if we're going to lower the rates. And I think you talked about that recently on a podcast. You were talking about that everyone who dies by suicide or attempts suicide was working, was recently working, or had a close friend or family that was working. So that's why you're really like, this is this is it. This is where we need to be. And that's why it's important to treat suicide like, you know, with prevention, just like we do CPR training, right? I mean, yeah. it's can save a life. Both can save a life, right? So... How can employers take steps needed to implement a program like this? So it depends on what the employer really wants to do. So if the employer wants to check a box, they can have a training, they can mm -hmm. put up some posters or, you know, they can have, a, they can, they can participate in, in World Suicide Prevention Day and feel good about themselves and, and go back to business. Um, if employers are serious, there's a different approach. Uh, and it's really, you know, when I say it to people, it makes sense because most people, most organizations are familiar with change management process mm -hmm. for whatever reason, they don't think it applies here, but it applies so much here. So on the front end, before you do stuff, it's really important to listen, uh, to listen deeply to your community. Um, and create safe space for people to talk about this. So when we partner with organizations, usually we go in, we 
We set up a, an anonymous survey that people can participate in. Um, we have focus groups and interviews. And you know, if they give us access, we look at the data they've already collected with their employee assistance program and engagement surveys and culture surveys and things like that. Um, and we just ask questions to get our finger on the pulse of what, what's going on here. Where, where's the, where are the strengths? Where's the resilience? Where's the pain? Uh, what do people think about the mental health resources? Do they know about them? What's the word on the street? Um, and then how many people have had some experiences in this space? What happened? You know, what do they, what do they need? What kind of resources would be beneficial and so forth? And then we come back to the employer or the professional association or the union or whoever we're working with. And then we say, here's what your people told us. Okay. So that has a lot more power than some external person flying in and giving some kind of coaching on what needs to happen. So here's what your people told us about what's true here. Here's the strengths, here's the gaps. And then we pair that up with the national strategy for workplace suicide prevention, proven best practices that have evidence uh, to, to make a difference in this space. But now when we weave those things together, we do so in a very culturally relevant way. So as you can imagine, that takes effort. <laughs> that takes effort and intention and strategic thinking and all of that. But that is really what makes a difference. And then I can go into the, the tactics in a second, but I just wanted to frame it that any one-off anything is just not gonna stick. It just doesn't work that way, especially with something that is so deeply ingrained, like our bias around suicide and mental health. It's just, it goes deep, 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 deep in us. It's religious teaching and our family's teaching and the media and all these things. We have all kinds of preconceived ideas about it. You got to do deep work to undo that. Yeah, for sure you do. For sure you do. You know, and one of the things, as I mentioned, you know, I had a close loved one that um, died by suicide. And when I went back to work, people didn't know how to handle me. Is that part of your program? Yes. So that's a very good point. So the question we always ask at the beginning is why? Why now? What, mm -hmm. what brought you to this request? And usually there's been a tragedy or a crisis or a near miss or something that's that's got the door open. So we always say, well, let's start there. You know, before you before you do all this other stuff, we've got to address the grief and trauma. We've got to acknowledge that something important happens here. Because if you roll out a, a training that says, you know, here's all the warning signs you missed and here's what you should have said, mm, right? We do 10 times more damage to all the people left behind. So we start in the response to the grief and trauma um, and also acknowledging if there is a family member there or, or you know, really close friends that are deeply impacted, um, we come alongside them first and say, you know, this is going to be a rollout. Are you okay with yeah. that? Because they, they tend to know it's in reaction to whatever happened, whatever that crisis was. Um, you know, uh, when it comes to a family member of a worker dying too, um, people just get deer in the headlights. Like mm -hmm. we don't know what to do. And so I, I just like to coach them on that because it's not it's not a, a big movement from what they already know. They just forget. Yeah. I say, how do you show up when workers, other families die of other things, of cancer, of a car wreck or whatever, how do you show up there? Because whatever that is, you should do the same thing here. Mm. You know, if you pass around the sympathy card, if you go to the memorial service, if people make casseroles, uh, you know, that's where you should start. It's the same thing of loss. The loss part is the same. We've lost someone we love. Um, and that's the most important thing. Say their name, you know, yeah. ask about stories about their life. Um, do what you would normally do if it was any other kind of death. That is such great advice. And I really wish, you know, because 
I think I ended up trying to be the comforter during that time when I didn't have anything left to give, you know. And mm -hmm. one thing that I would encourage people to do when you do any kind of loss in the workplace is, you know, my friend calls it grief cooties. You know, mm -hmm. don't don't treat people like they have grief cooties. And if they just suddenly start crying for no reason, let them, you know, because they don't know what's tripped them or why they're doing it. You just have to let them get it out. And this too shall pass. You know, because yeah. that's what my mom my, always my said. Colleague, uh, yeah, just just Rainey and I wrote a, a chapter on suicide grief and the workplace, because the other thing that that gets difficult for people is, well, how many days do we get? three, you know, three days to, to grieve a first degree relative. That's just not going to happen for mm -hmm. someone who, especially parents who've lost children, you know, or, you know, siblings, it's, it's too much to process in three days. So then what ends up happening is, you know, I'll tell you what happened to me. And, and I had a very good workplace response. I was working at a Jesuit university at the time and the Jesuits get grief. I mean, I mm -hmm. walked into my office and my desk was covered with all kinds of really thoughtful notes and flowers and, you know, the stuff you get, uh, my inbox jammed. People didn't, I didn't even know reaching out, offering love. And to this day, what are we about 15 years later, they still send me a note on his death anniversary Aww. saying, you know, we were holding Carson in our hearts today or something beautiful like that. And I'm like, y'all got this, right? <laughs> you need to share this work with other right. people because grief is such a big part of our humanity. Um, and yet in our, in, in the United States, pretty much we don't do it well. We, we kind of push it off to the side and people stuff it down and try to go back to normal. But the work of grief is the opposite of the work of work. <laughs> the work of grief is slow and it's contemplative and it's very deeply feeling based. Um, the work of work is more, you know, cognitive and fast and so forth. And so you're forcing people. Uh, and then I didn't even mention the work of trauma, which of course lays on top of the work of grief when it comes to suicide, you've got the double whammy. Um, you're just forcing people to try to live up to expectations that mm -hmm. it's just not going to be possible. Their brain is going to be consumed with all of this other thoughts and, and experiences. Uh, and so you set them up for failure. And one of the things that we see is that people tend to job transition or, or lose their job after a suicide death. So you got all these dominoes that start to fall over when if they could just get a little bit of accommodation, a little bit of grace around coming back to work, um, you know, you would keep a perfectly good employee and they would probably be incredibly loyal because <laughs> you, you met them, you know, you met them where they were at at their worst day. I know for me, <laughs> I had had a baby. I had had a baby, my, my youngest Jackson in September. So I had burned through everything already because oh. my brother died in December. I'd burned through all my FMLA. I'd burned through like everything they could give me. I'd already used and, uh, they just threw in extra stuff. I don't even know where they got it just to get me through the holidays. Um, and then I had to go back to work, but you know, they really tried hard to give me, you know, the accommodation of a leave to, to just get my feet back underneath me. That is so awesome. And, you know, and kudos to your company. I, I will say the company I worked for at the time of the incident was also very accommodating and they, they didn't give me a timeline. They said, take as much time as you need. Your job's here when you get back. So, yeah. And I thought that was really huge. So they did a good it job with that. It does. Yeah, it really does. Um, so I know you've conducted a lot of research on the mental health space. How has the pandemic impacted workplace well-being and what changes are employers having to make to truly care for their employees' well-being? I just had this conversation earlier today, as a matter of fact, so I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So 
the story of the pandemic will still be unfolding for a long time. So I'll just put that out there. And, and we are learning all the time how it's impacting people's well-being. And, you know, I think for me, the eye-opening piece was, um, so SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, our feds, our, our government agency that oversees mental health and substance use, um, they had pulled together data from large-scale disasters and noticed a very common pattern which I think is is playing out here. And so I always like to share it, which is, you know, if you can think back to, to February, January, February of 2020, we had the anticipatory phase. We could see things coming. We weren't sure what we were dealing with. Um, and we got weird, okay? Mm -hmm. We were, you know, hoarding toilet paper for reasons we didn't know. <laughs> I mean, we just got really weird. Um, and and it was just our, our anxiety of not not knowing what to expect. And then when it started to hit, which was really fast and strong, um, what, what tends to happen right at the moment of disaster is kind of an upswing of uh, pulling together and a sense of we're all in this together and belonging. And kind of, it's kind of like a honeymoon phase. Um, I, and I don't know if this is true nationally, but here in Colorado at 8 p.m. every night, we were howling out our windows, supporting our first responders and essential workers. People were making masks. People were you know delivering food to elders. I mean, like we pulled together and we tried to make a difference. Um, and then end of May happened and we were like a, a pressure cooker that exploded. And so we, we see this again, it's a common pattern in disasters that after this honeymoon period, it tips over uh, and you get festered in disillusionment and discontent and conflict and, and you know, in our case, violence, you know, um, and it goes on and on and on with each new trigger uh, related to the disaster. Um, we're still kind of in there, but I think also when the vaccine started to roll out here, we got glimmers of hope of coming back to some kind of normal thing, felt like we could see people and do stuff that we used to do. Um, and so we're kind of working our way up again with the you know reconciliation and reconstruction and trying to understand, but right again here we got, we got the Delta variant looming. So, I mean, looming in some areas, hitting in other areas. Um, so that's kind of like the, the usual disaster curve that we, we mapped onto pretty well. Now, the unique contributions of the, the pandemic, this situation, you know, also had people extremely concerned about skyrocketing suicide rates. You know, we had people alone we had tons of uncertainty about life and death issues. We had elders, you know, who couldn't hold people mm -hmm. and touch people. Um, we've got babies and, uh, and young kids who can't read, you know, people's faces. I mean, we've got all these things happening. Um, and we did see a lot of concerning early warning signs throughout the year, things that are connected to suicide. Obviously, changes in employment are connected to suicide. Um, increase in alcohol use, holy cannoli. The alcohol, our alcohol use went through the roof during the pandemic. We were bored, and so we drank ourselves silly. Um, we, we also saw an uptick in firearm purchases. Um, around every single time there was a massive um, social conflict issue, huge mm -hmm. uptick in firearm purchases. And again, I want to be clear, firearm owners are not more suicidal. However, if you are suicidal and you have access to a firearm, you're far more likely to die. So whenever we see upticks in firearms, we get concerned because more people have access to it when they're despairing in that impulsive moment, it's right there. Um, and then things like domestic violence calls went up. Um, another thing that happened was... Um, you know, uh, child welfare calls actually went down um, because the kids weren't at school. And it's mm. usually the guidance counselor, the teacher, they are the ones who notice neglect and abuse and so forth. And they're the ones that start to get that 
moving and nobody was calling because nobody was watching these kids. So now we've got a whole cohort of children who've been abused or neglected for all these months, uh, which is gonna have massive long-term impacts. So we were all concerned about skyrocketing suicide rates and lo and behold, by January, we got the data, they went down. The suicide rates went down 5%. Wow. Um, and again, for those of us in epidemiology and public health, we weren't necessarily surprised just because of, you know, those positive factors that we talked about, about pulling together and, and just other things that we know that protect people. Um, however, that's not the whole story. So within that, we have communities of color. So communities of color suicide rate actually went up very significantly. Overall, the rate went down, um, but, but communities of color went up. Um, and the other thing to note is that while suicide went down, <clears throat> overdoses and other um, accidental deaths went way up. And so we're also trying to sort through that. Were those misclassified because our, our medical examiners didn't have time to do the deep dive of trying to figure out intent because they were paying attention to all the COVID deaths, right? Or you know, you know, or or the were these gray area deaths, you know, that people were just putting themselves at risk anyway because they were maybe ambiguous about living or dying. You know, we just don't know yet, and so that's why I said the story of the impact here on mental health um, is a long term story, not just a twenty twenty story. Wow, and and so much of that I had no idea of. So, so I think really what we want to know is okay. Let's say we don't have a program at work, right? We don't have an official program. So, what are some signs that I would look for to let me know that someone might be potentially suicidal or need some help? And where do I find resources to help them? Yeah, that's great. And so, you know, if your employer or professional association is is not yet ready to bite bite the big apple or the whole enchilada, as I was describing earlier, where you do the deep listening and then you roll out, you know, we've got nine practices in the guidelines. Like, I get that. That's a that's a big lift for employers to take on. Um, it is the right thing to do, however, and hopefully you'll get there because just like any other major issue, it's not going to be done with a, a one and done. Um, and so now individuals are, are, are looking like, can you just at least give me some tips? Um, mm -hmm. Because until that happens, I would like to know what to do. Um, and so I'm going to give you short answers because this is a short podcast, but then encourage you to um, champion this. You know, there's there's trains trainings within your community probably that you can attend or bring someone into the workplace to do. Um, one of them is called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. Another is called Safe Talk. Um, we have a national training that's specific for the workplace that's called Working Minds. All of these can be done in like an hour to three hours. So. Um, you can you can champion to bring that in, or you can find one that's happening in your community to go. Um, but but I'll just give you a couple of things to look for. And one of the things that often happens with people who are fighting suicide is that um, sleep gets disrupted. Mm. Right, that's a common thing, and we've all been there. Like when we're having a hard time, we notice hard to fall asleep, hard to stay asleep. Sometimes we have nightmares. Um, sometimes we sleep and sleep and sleep and we never feel rested. We've all had tastes of that. Um, it gets it gets ramped up a little bit with people who are fighting suicide because suicidal thoughts are, can be very consuming for people. It's like an epic battle inside them. And this is not universal. Um, there are lots of expressions of suicidal thoughts. Um, when they're very intense, it often feels like an epic, epic battle inside someone um, and it comes out as agitation. So agitation often impacts sleep. So I tell you this because it's a softball question that coworkers can ask one another. 
because we're not ashamed about talking about not sleeping for whatever reason that's an easier question to answer than some of the other questions how have you been sleeping lately i've noticed you looked a little fatigued how are you sleeping lately um that's and that can be a doorway in to a larger conversation about their well-being you know sometimes when people aren't sleeping well sometimes they've got other things going on i know that's true for me right so always kind of have that empathic response so sleep is a big one um and that and and that we also know they're very closely correlated. So the more sleep is disrupted, the more likely people are at risk for suicidal thoughts, behavior, and death. They're very closely correlated. Um, you know, another piece that that coworkers can notice is that because agitation is so uncomfortable, it kind of feels like you're climbing the walls. Um, people tend to numb out um, to cope with that, and so you'll see that their substance use goes up. So at happy hour, or whatever, maybe they have they'd have one or two drinks. Now they're having five or six. Um, reckless behavior also increases. So you might see um, people not adhering to safety standards at work, you know, that they were really closely tied to and felt were really important to kind of blowing them off or they're driving drunk after happy hour, things like that, where you start to notice that, that reckless behavior. Um, another thing that happens is that people withdraw. So maybe they used to participate in, you know, the work softball league or, you know, they would go have lunch with people. Um, and now they've got no bandwidth. They've got no bandwidth for, for people uh, and no bandwidth for any kind of things that they used to do that they used to like to do. Um, they kind of shrink their world down often into a very small place. Um, and I remember when I went through my own depression, uh, I, I, I understand that because the, the, the parts of your brain that fire when you feel pleasure don't fire anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you actually can't enjoy eating uh, going and being social is completely exhausting. Um, and so it feels like self-protection when you withdraw, but what, what ends up happening is your world just kind of closes in on itself. Um, and then the last one, I could go on all day on this. I'll just, <laughs> give you, I'll just give you one more, is that people will tell you. Um, they just don't always tell you directly. So in the trainings that happen, we, we coach people on how to approach a conversation around suicide, and it's more than I can cover today. But, but the, the big point of it is that you need to be direct in asking a question about suicide if you're worried about someone, and it's okay to be wrong. That's the other people, the people feel like, what am I wrong? Well, good. you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, people are like, will I be embarrassed? Maybe, I don't know. But what if you didn't ask and your gut was right? Then yeah. that feels worse, right? So, so asking a direct question is important. And that's sometimes how you get to find out that people are thinking about it. But many times people who are fighting suicide want people to know, they just don't know who they can trust. So it really yep. is a question about trust. And so they will often do what we, we call in the business invitations to the conversation. They will give indirect statements, indirect expressions of their suicidal thoughts. Um, and when you hear them, if you don't know what you're hearing, it sometimes just flies right by your awareness. But if, you, if you're if you noticing yourself, it's kind of like the hair on the back of your neck goes up a little bit. You're like, that doesn't sound right. But we tend to talk ourselves out of that. For example, like, you know, why should I bother? Or, this is just too much. I can't take it anymore. It's just things like that that just seems a little fatalistic or a little off um, about their worthlessness or their, how they matter in the world. Um, and our brain does this wobble thing. Like, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And then we tend to talk ourselves out of it and go, nah, I'm just blowing things out of proportion. Joe's being Joe, it's no big deal. Uh, and so that's the other part that we train people in. If you start to hear those invitations, those indirect expressions of despair or hopelessness or frustration that are seeming 
seemingly kind of dire, even though it's not direct, go in, like ask a clarifying question. You know, that, that was, that was pretty interesting that you said that. What did you mean by that? Right. And see if you can get the conversation going that way. Um, so that's another thing to, to, to notice. And when we start to train people on that, all of a sudden they pick up on it where before it just whoop, goes right over their head because they don't know what to look for. Well, I feel like, and looking back, I don't know that I saw those signs, but I wasn't there either. So, you know, I think that, and going back to the sleep thing, I can tell you without a doubt that my loved one went three days without sleeping. Of course, I didn't know that till after the fact, but it still happened. So um, one more question, and then we'll get to our VIP questions because we are just about out of time, but I really, I really want to spend some time on this. So I hope you're still good on time and can give us just a little bit longer. Um, but what are some of the truths of workplace suicide prevention you feel aren't widely known, but should be? Mm, Yeah. So I trained all kinds of workplaces, large, multinational, small, nonprofits, government sector, everybody. Um, and as part of my training, I always do anonymous and confidential polling because I know something that's true that they don't know about each other. And I like them to reveal that to each other in this way. So I ask them, I say, you know, in this anonymous and confidential poll, how have these issues shown up in your life? Addiction, mental health, suicide, either your first degree or you were your, your experience, or you were a first degree helper for someone else, you know, a a partner or a child or somebody. Um, and it's almost universal, almost universal, usually, you know, in the, in the high nineties. And then I say, you know, for the, for the 7% of you who have not had any of these direct or in, you know, one degree off experiences, you're surrounded by a lot of wisdom. Mm. It's because it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when this shows up in your life and you should just know when that happens, look to the left, look to the right. Mm. Everybody around you has had something in their life connected to this and they will give you insight. They will give you really important insights about their experiences uh, so that you can better understand your experience. So I frame it that way. Like these are lived experiences that almost everybody has in one way or another. Um, and if we just knew that about each other, um, we could come alongside each other instead of judging. A lot of times the judgment comes because it's a reaction like, oh, I don't want to be thought of in that way. So I'm going to push against this other thing to make myself feel so different when the truth is we're a lot more similar than we are different. We just don't always talk about this. And I think that's changing. I think the new generation of workers is like, whoo, shaking stuff up. They are <laughs> wise in this space because they just grew up with it, you know, from yeah. preschool, preschool television and their, you know, social and emotional learning classes. They are so much more fluent in this. Um, and they always push my, push my thinking all the time. So I think it's going to change. Um, also, they are pushing workplaces to change because if they if they go to a workplace that doesn't understand this, they leave, they don't stick around anymore. They job hop. And, you know, I know in your role, you're well aware of the fact that churn is the, probably the number one pain point right now. People can't retain their talent. Um, This is a big issue around this. So um, the other piece that I want to emphasize with this question is that, you know, workplaces get scared about suicide and then, you know, can we just, can we just stay with the wellness stuff? And I say, yes. And, You know, when you just stay with yoga and meditation and believe me, I meditate every day. These are important practices for our well-being, but it is one small sliver of a comprehensive approach to suicide prevention. 
there's lots of other components. Um, and you never, what you're communicating is that that level of an issue is invisible here, right? When you, when you address it head on and you, and you acknowledge, we know that some of you are fighting suicidal thoughts. We know that some of you are taking care of someone who's fighting to stay. We know that some of you have lost loved ones to suicide and we are showing up for you totally different message, right? Then we're going to pretend it's not here. Yes. So I'm starting to see this shift over time. And it just took a few credible early adopters, credible businesses that say, yep, we're not afraid. Get us in the arena. Let's figure this out. They modeled it. And then the other companies go, okay, they're still standing. Seems like it's working. You know, they were just, they just needed a couple of early adopters to show them the way. And, and now I start to see it moving forward in a, in a much faster way. That is so awesome. And thank you for the work you do. And I know that you're doing a lot of work for setting up those. Um, what's the organization that you're working with for setting up the standards? Yeah. So um, so it's a program that's supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and United Survivors. And it's this really amazing committee of people across all kinds of industries and roles and so forth. It's the National Guidelines for Workplace Suicide Prevention. So for all the things that I've been talking about and so much more, it's WorkplaceSuicidePrevention.com, which that's easy to remember, WorkplaceSuicidePrevention.com. I love it so much. So this has been so informative and thank you for sharing such a difficult topic and for being such an advocate for, you know, finding those, you know, those, those safety rules, those guidelines. I mean, it's, it's needed. It's time that we quit pretending like suicide doesn't exist because it does and right. that we help as many people as we can. So before I let you go, I do have our three VIP questions, which seem a little inappropriate after this conversation, but I'm going with it. 116 episodes. I've asked them every episode. So, so very quickly, if you were chosen to be one of the first colonists on Mars, what three things or people would you take with you? So I was thinking about this and I'm like, Mars is going to be super uncomfortable. I'm bringing things that have comfort to me. Um, so obviously, obviously I bring my family cause they're important, but if I have to pick three additional things, um, my dog, my dog, Rocky, always by my side, especially during COVID, like always he, he'll be up here in a second, but I told him he couldn't come cause he'd be in the shot um, <laughs> and he'd be like, you know, nosing and licking me the whole time. Um, so my dog Rocky, cause he's a big part of my mental health. I would bring my cabin from Grand Lake, which is also where I'm at right now. This is my happy place. Um, and everything about here is comfort to me. We bought it from an older woman. Um, and so it was like grandma's cabin and was turnkey. Um, so it still feels like grandma's cabin. Everything oh, that's is awesome. The seventies. And I just love it. It's like creaky everything. And it's in this beautiful <laughs> spot on the earth. Um, and then the third thing would have to be sushi. <laughs> this is my favorite food. It makes me so happy. So those would be the <laughs> I am a big fan of sushi too. So I get that. And it's the first time I've ever had that on the show. So there you go. <laughs> and a whole cabin. I mean, you're not just bringing a piece. Yeah, you're bringing the whole cabin. Whole That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> so, and you alluded to this earlier, but I just want you to really highlight it. What is one thing you do each morning to set your day up for success? Yeah, I, I, I have a whole ritual that I adhere to um, very strictly during COVID because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a business of two. If I go to, and I'm a, I am the the only breadwinner in our family of five. So if I go down, 
a lot of people go down with me. So I had to stay really well during a very, very difficult, you know, like everybody, very, very difficult year. Um, and so I adhered to a, a, a pretty extensive morning ritual, you know, starting at about 4.30 with, you know, running and meditating and so forth. But I think the thing for me that is, um, that has been really helpful because it starts to wire my brain from the very get-go is, um, it's just this practice. I write down the three things I'm grateful for for the mm. day before. And then I also get my brain wired for what am I anticipating that's awesome. So three things I'm grateful for the day before. And sometimes it's big stuff like my health or, you know, my kids. Um, a lot of times I focus on very, very concrete things like the way my fuzzy slippers warm my feet, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. Like I get my brain to focus on very concrete sensation things to ground myself. Um, and then the what to anticipate gets my brain wired, not on my problems of the day, but what, what are the goodies I got coming, like trips I'm taking or people I get to see or projects I'm working. It's mostly not work stuff. It's mostly fun and friends and cool things like that. Um, and I have to tell you, there were parts of the pandemic where that exercise that what do I look forward to, um, I couldn't come up with much and it was mm. hard. Like I had to get real creative. I'm like, okay, I am looking forward to watching an episode of Breaking Bad tonight. Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it, was, it wasn't the big stuff because me, it's usually travel. I'm, I'm usually getting on a plane, going somewhere cool, seeing friends, doing, doing something fun and I had nothing. So, so, th so that was a big part of it. Um, and then, you know, writing down an affirmation and how it applies to my day. And it's usually just a word that I'm trying to focus on that kind of sets the tone for what I want to have happen that day. And that whole thing usually takes maybe three minutes, mm -hmm. but what it does is it, it wires your brain from the very beginning of your day on the good stuff. Um, because I could eat just as easily look at my calendar and go, yeah. I'm not prepared. I didn't do the thing. It's going to be stressful. Right. And I don't want to do that like first thing in the morning. So wire your brain to go answer some questions that get you set for the day for good. I love that you just said that. And let me tell you why this is such a synchronicity because I listened to a podcast this morning that said almost the exact same thing. And, and I do that every morning too. I write down my gratitudes, but I don't necessarily look. And she said, you know, write down also what you're looking forward to or what you're anticipating. So this is the second time I've heard it today, which means guess who's got a new ritual tomorrow. Yeah. Well, one of the things I learned was that our brains are, are hardwired to solve problems. That's mm -hmm. what we do. So go give it work that solves a positive problem or a question. Ugh, uh, so good. It's an, an empowering question. Set your brain on a job that's going to help you. Right? Yep. Otherwise, it's just it's going to get mired in the big ugly stuff, which it has to do anyways. But put put into the mix something that's that's a, a problem to solve, a question to answer that's going to be giving you good things to think about. One of my favorite sayings is "What you focus on grows." That's so true. Yeah, so true. Okay, yep. final question. Um, if your life's work was being summarized in a news article, what would the headline be? So I thought about this and I know you want me to give you like a three word soundbite, but I just kept coming back to this quote that really defines my life. And I've used it my whole life. If that's okay. It's a little no, longer than the three Hey, word this is the floor is okay. yours. Okay. E.B. White, right? I get up every morning determined to both change the world and have one hell of a good time. Sometimes this makes planning my day difficult. That is the story of my life. <laughs> I want to change the world and I also got to have fun. Um, and so my whole day is like, oh, I could do that or I could do that. I could do that or is that? Yeah. My, that uh, is... my business manager, Jessica, is like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> we like Jessica, by the way. She kept She's this awesome. thing flowing, <laughs> you know. So again, how do people find you? Let's say companies, you know, that may want to bring you in to do training. What, what's the quickest way to get to you? 
Yeah. So I, I'm in all, all the places I'm in LinkedIn, but I'm very clunky with LinkedIn. I don't, I don't like it. Um, so my, my email address is Sally Spencer Thomas at gmail.com. That's probably the most direct way. Um, you can go to the website, Sally Spencer Thomas, uh, Sally Spencer Thomas at gmail.com is my email. Sally Spencer Thomas.com is my website. Um, and there you can see like the kinds of uh, speaking I do training and so forth. Um, and uh, again, I would love to help. Well, this has been a great conversation, not necessarily a fun one, but one that needed to be told or had. So I just have one more thing to say to you. You, you are a VIP. That's awesome. I'm so excited. Thank you, Casey. (laughs) And that's a wrap for today. Join us next week here on the We Are VIP podcast. We'd love to know how we can help you be a VIP. To find out more, log on to wearevip.com.